Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Rebecca Atkinson-Lord, and you're listening to The Legacy Tapes, a series of conversations with artistic leaders talking about ideas around legacy and what it means to try and leave something behind in a largely ephemeral medium. And I'm here with Vicky Featherstone, who is the Artistic Director at the Royal Court. Before that, she was the Founding Artistic Director at the National Theatre of Scotland. She ran Payne's Plough. She's edited brilliant TV programmes. Basically, she's kind of an icon, um, uh, which is probably something that you hate hearing or love hearing. Never heard it before, so... Oh, great. So Hi. Hi. <laughs> Um, and I do hate it, but that's... You do, I hate it, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I just think, cause kind of for, especially for women, for female directors of my generation, and I hate defining people just as women, <laughs> because that's not what we are, we're other things, but it's so brilliant to be able to see somebody there doing it and be like, okay, it's possible, mm-hmm. I can do that. That even if that's something, I mean, I feel like that's probably one of your legacies, even if you're not consciously striving for it. Um... So what was it like, let's just jump straight in, what, when you took over here, yeah. um, because it's such a contrast from starting National Theatre of Scotland, yeah. because you can kind of make that in your own image, but yeah. here it has that weight of yeah. years. Legacy. Legacy. Did you, were you aware of that? Were you aware of kind of... Um, I think, obviously, I'm aware of it, because the Royal Court, since I, since I went to university when I was 18, has always been sort of part of my sort of theatre conversation, if yeah. you like. Um, I went to Manchester University, and the, the plays that I read, the British plays that I read, that were the ones that suddenly kind of clicked with me the most, were the plays that, coincidentally, I thought, had got first performed at the Royal Court in the front of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they were the plays that really kind of switched me on to kind of theatre being about now and not being a kind of respectful look into the past. Yeah. Um, which is ironic when we're talking about legacy, of course. Yeah. Um, but, but um, so, so I've always kind of looked to the Royal Court in a way. Um, I feel that when I got this job, however, I was naive to the to the power of that legacy to the artistic director Mm -hmm. because for me the job at the Royal Court in one sense is about who are the new voices what are the stories that we need to be telling now what are the forms that we need to be discovering who are the people that we need to be encouraging how are we moving theatre forwards for the future Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's that's the primary role of the artistic director of the Royal Court but of course you also have to nurture the past because we are standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm. Somebody said this phrase when I was at the National Theatre of Scotland. It's really a brilliant phrase, I think. Standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm. And actually, that must be acknowledged and the best bits from that to be learned from and the not great bits to be rejected. Yeah. So there's an interesting balance. But um, I've never felt the pressure of the past at the Royal Court. But, yeah. That's exactly what you want to hear in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Because I think, I, I, you know, I would be so worried taking up the post... In 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 a, in, a, in a place with such a history, mm. that I would either that I'd do something stupid like be scared of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think I think the benefit that I had 
was that actually, although it probably doesn't feel like this now or to the majority of people in the outside world, I was quite an outsider to this role. The, a lot of the people who've taken the, the sort of uh, mantle of artistic director at the Royal Court have had a much more fundamental relationship with it in mm. terms of they've either been associate directors or they've been assistant directors here and they've worked a lot more. Mm-hmm. I really hadn't had that much of a kind of professional kind of relationship with the Royal Court mm. through Payne's Plough being kind of a separate thing and then National Theatre of Scotland. So I felt that I was able to, well I didn't feel this, I wasn't aware of this at the time, but looking back, I was able to come in with the sort of things that I'd learnt from the National Theatre of Scotland and from Payne's Plough at the kind of forefront of what I wanted the Royal Court to be. Mm. And I think in the past, other people have taken it over with the thing at the forefront being the legacy that they've witnessed. Yeah. Um, so what happened to me was that since I've been here, I've come to respect and love the legacy more than I thought I would, because mm-hmm. really, I hate looking backwards and I'm quite change-obsessed. Yeah. Um, so I have come to kind of really enjoy it. You know, the fact that this is the first place that Brecht was ever on, you know, and it's Arthur Miller was bloody amazing. All those things, I yeah. feel incredibly proud to be here, yeah. but no pressure. G- good. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. No pressure at all. Pressure is the future. <laughs> so that's really interesting because one of my one of my questions was going to be like, how you think about whether you think about um, innovation and change as a driver or kind of stability as a driver? Because I I used to run a. Th- um, Overhouse in yeah. South London, and I was really aware of what the legacy of that place yeah. was, but also this incredible need for ch- like for change and yeah. relevance, and um, while simultaneously not burning it down. Yes. Um, how do you balance those things? And actually, let's. Le- I mean, because also let's talk about NTS a little bit because, you, I mean, the what you could the, there was no there was nothing there to protect. You no. had to create it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think going to your it's really interesting kind of break, we'll come back to NTS in a minute, but the thing about stability and check versus change, I think, you know, uh, to be an artistic director, you have to be able to carry those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I think stability is the thing that you have to take for granted and that you have to expect that you, or, or you have to create or expect that you are running or inheriting an organisation that has the ability to be stable at its core in terms of the planning financial resource, all of those kind of mm-hmm. things, and that you work really hard to preserve and nurture that in order that it is all about innovation and risk. And I feel at my most fearful mm. when we are not taking risks. Mm-hmm. I feel at my most fearful in anything that I've ever done when I feel like we're being safe in some way and mm-hmm. I think that's when something's going to come in here from the head and it's all going to go wrong. So I'm kind of, I, I always I'm really looking for that thing. As long as if we feel we know how to do something, mm. it feels like it's going to head towards mediocrity and yes. isn't relevant. And why should we be spending public money on doing it? It's actually about subsidies here for us to be able to do things that we don't know how to do, that writers don't know how to write, that we don't know whether they're going to work. Mm. Um, and what you bring, hopefully, the legacy that I hope I have for myself in this is that I hope that my experience enables that to be within a secure enough environment that I'm not going to fuck up the Royal Court. So it's those two balances. But at NTS, what was very interesting was, of course, that the sort of history of theatre in Scotland Mm. is so entirely different to the history of theatre in England Mm. that the notion of what a sort of canon is and what the sort of um, and what the sort of legacy of theatre handing forward is a very very different sense of pressures. So there wasn't when I started 
one cohesive idea about what the history of theatre is in Scotland. Yeah. Because it's never really been a kind of clear narrative because it's been so sort of broken up. Whereas here, we do all agree, regardless of where we stand now, on what the kind of history of theatre in this country is Shakespeare, you know, yeah. the court supporting West Globe, blah, blah, blah. blah There's an agreed on. narrative. There yeah. is an absolute agreed narrative. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting, starting an organisation where there isn't even an agreed narrative about what the history of theatre is mm-hmm. and where we're at. Um, which can be quite explosive in a way, because of course the, 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 the version that I spoke about around what that was was the fact that there wasn't a Scottish theatre canon, mm. and that I was at liberty to be able to be part of creating one for now and looking at what a national theatre meant now. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about having to take responsibility for putting all of those old plays on mm. and, and, and preserving them in some way. Now, of course, some people would then say to me, the older generation would sort of say, but there are these plays, these plays, these plays, these plays. And, of course, they're not wrong, but compared to what the weight of that theatre canon is in England, it's, it's not a big pressure. Yeah. Um, what happened in Scotland, which was fascinating, was that the kind of theatre shifted, really, mainly around John McGraw and A Good Night Out, mm-hmm. and then Achieve It and Stab and the Black Black Hole. Mm-hmm. So the, the theatre history was a recent theatre history, it was a demotic history. It was one about telling the political stories of now, using song, using story, taking it to the people, and sort of blasting through a kind of elite theatre form. Hey, and as a manifesto, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. So for me, that that was an amazing legacy to be able to look back to and 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 to aspire to be to create the modern the new version of that. Mm with the resource and with the bracket national so that was really exciting I mean it must have been yeah it sounds when you put it like that when you look at that as the as what you're working with yeah that's an absolute dream yeah it's a total dream and you know it's it's very much about you know in our first year one of the thing, one of the sort of things that we talked about with the National Theatre uh, before we came up with the with the phrase theatre without walls was the thing we called it your national theatre mm. And, of course, for me, that was a really clear manifesto, which was about going out into Scotland, trying to find the widest possible community of people to engage with, with different kinds of work. It wasn't mm. trying to find one thing that would engage with mm. everybody, but that you could find a more experimental, weird European theatre piece yeah. to engage with a certain group of people yeah. in Glasgow. Then you could find a big populist piece to fill out the kind of 2,000 seaters around, mm-hmm. and all those things could coexist. Um, but it was about how... So, 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 for me, it was very much about... How was I going to set up a national theatre that nobody that hadn't had nothing mm. that within a certain amount of years the country would be able to claim as their own and have had some kind of relationship with yeah. in the different layers and that was the kind of and have that kind of that repository for national pride or yeah that thing exactly that like, this is what that's this exactly is who we right are. and you know it's really interesting when people talk about. You know, the Irish National Theatre, which is now over 100 years old, isn't it? I don't know how, exactly how old it is, the Abbey. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the oldest of the UK islands, uh, National Theatres. Yeah, I never realised that. And, of course, when you think about plays like all the OKC and the Eights and Sing mm. and everything like that, the reason they've become so well-known by us is because they came from their, that National Theatre that have then put them on and on and on and yeah. on again so they have become sort of national icons yeah. those plays um, so that was the responsibility of that theatre then I think the National Theatre of Scotland has got a different responsibility I think it is about harvesting the stories of now and mm. pushing theatre forward for now so I have many questions now none of which are the ones I intended to ask but they're more interesting <laughs> and one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot because I, I find 
people I, I feel like I deal with people or I meet people who are in two camps mm-hmm. um, the camp of people that go it's just plays mm-hmm. and the camp of people that go no this is important mm-hmm. and for me and please tell me I'm an idiot um, but for me like theatre even though it is this esoteric theoretically the people keep telling us it's dying medium Um, I don't think I agree with it but anyway um, it's really important because for me society is built of the stories we Mm -hmm. tell and our you know and our identity like and every time you tell a story you add a thread to that tapestry Mm -hmm. it changes were you aware in choosing those stories at NTS and now actually here because the court has such an impact that you are sculpting our uh, what who we are no i don't think i would ever believe think i don't think i would ever think that mm. i don't think that 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 i have that much power or ability what i do believe fundamentally uh, and agree with you though is that we are changed by the stories that we tell sometimes they can affirm who we are and sometimes they can Shift. Mm-hmm. That's the other ones I like the most. Mm-hmm. Who we think we are, uh, but but they are vital to us in every way. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that really thrills me about theatre and why there is no risk to it in any way at all, other than kind of funding, mm. um, is that you know if you look back to sort of ancient Greece, yeah, where you know you could say that theatre as we recognise it sort of formally first started, yes, and what it does. Mm-hmm. The form of that has not changed. Mm-hmm. What still happens is an actor walks out in front of an audience and speaks and tells a story. Yeah. And we are we laugh at that, we cry about it, we feel connection to it, we are provoked by it, we reject it. In over 2,000 years, theatre hasn't actually mm-hmm. changed. So technology and all the things that we've been scared of in theatre, mm-hmm. you know, cinema is going to ruin theatre, etc., yeah. actually have just helped us tell their stories in different mm-hmm. ways. But the actual fundamental act of it is so in our DNA mm. that it really hasn't changed. Um, I find that unbelievably thrilling. Um, and so for me, the other thing I think that is extraordinary about theatre is the fact that we sit in a space together... And we witness this event and the shared witnessing and the empathy that we feel is something that becomes undeniable for us. Mm-hmm. I think it is the shared witnessing. I sit next to you and this person and I feel something and you felt it too. And I'm always really interested by the fact that, you know, physiologically that feeling of empathy that we get actually does make a change. We can never not have that feeling again if it's recreated. So I do believe theatre has the ability uh, to transform. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to kind of you know, end the refugee crisis in Syria, mm-hmm. but I mean to make us feel something different than we felt before, and then possibly might change how we think and then how we speak and all those kinds mm. of things. And I really believe that 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 is possible. So therefore, I'm in the camp where I think theatre is incredibly, incredibly important to us socially and culturally, as humans and psychologically. And, um, and I therefore feel that the kind of seeking of those stories and the mm. people who tell those stories is a huge responsibility. Yeah. And that has to be a very active Because thing. you're curating those changes. You're curating those moments. And, this, and for me, I always feel that... Uh, I always feel very insecure when we start to programme 
even though I'm very confident about the individual bits, mm-hmm. I sort of said, to, oh, but if we put that on now, does that mean that we're missing on that thing that I would mm-hmm. like us to be thinking about or that we are thinking about because the news is telling us about it mm-hmm. or our lives are telling us about it? So for me, it's a very restless act, the thing that I do, which is yeah. constantly having to weigh up my power and responsibility to the stories that we should and shouldn't be telling mm. and the people in front of us that's quite tiring you know that's quite wearing yeah that's, that's the hardest bit of my job by the way tell me more about that well apart from the kind of hr and looking after people that's mm. absolutely the hardest bit of my job because it's like a it's like a sort of infernal wheel if mm-hmm. you like of questioning is that is that the right is that the yeah. thing is that the thing is that the thing and although individually you can know that a, pe- a piece of play is that feels like it's absolutely the right thing to put on mm. I'm constantly thinking about well what's the impact of that over a year and what does that mean if we haven't been able to get that kind of audience back yeah. into the theatre because they started to hear that story yeah. and they started to think about that so there's a lot of that going on. Because it's also not just what it's not just the stories you're telling or how you're telling them; it's the things you're not saying. It's all of that exactly. It's it's exactly yeah. you know. And um, for example, an interesting thing for me was um, as soon as as soon as the hell of Brexit happened on June twenty fourth. Mm. That's my wedding anniversary. That's why I remember oh. that. And I got married in France, so it's now like become this <laughs> the symbol. tragic thing. When we got, when we kind of I'm got sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but that's awful. <laughs> I know. I'm so we sorry. We still have France. We got anyway. Um, no, it's terrible. When that happened, it was just very interesting how many people immediately, as a kind of knee-jerk response, totally understandably, contacted me and said, what's the Royal Court doing about Brexit? Because we mm. needed someone, something to help us think about to hold this. That, yeah, yeah, to hold that. Of course, not, there isn't anything because it's still too complicated. Mm. So it's interesting that at the moment there is nothing about that because nobody knows what it would be mm-hmm. other than confusion and something. It's just interesting. So, so it, that's a conscious thing about not doing anything about that because all the rights are like, well, I don't know what to think about it. I can't be a spokesperson or a shaman about this thing yet. I don't know what it is. And anything that is clear is a lie, just now. Like, totally, just yeah. Now. yeah. And like, you could do something verbatim and rapid response, but, but that's been so covered in the news. Yeah. I'm always thinking about... It's um, not adding anything. No, and I'm always thinking, you know, in the end, what, what my job is about is... is, is tiny bit of curating but really what my job is about is giving the platform to the artists and mm. the playwrights and it's about what they want to write now and sometimes you know like when we you know um, well I'm trying to think like when we did Blackwatch a long time mm. ago at the National Theatre of Scotland not that long no ten years not that long well, I mean I, I remember it yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. but I just don't want to keep harping on it you know it's that thing this thing we don't do that but that's an example of me going actually we need to be looking at that and then asking Greg Burke to do that um, but but the majority of the work actually the majority of my level of, of, of programming is at the mercy of what the writers that I'm in contact mm. with and commissioning want to write mm-hmm. So it's very much reliant on their awareness of the world and what they think is important. And I find that quite exciting. But that's the bit that's quite scary too. Because who knows? Yeah. Do you ever do you ever commission based on a thing? Do you ever go, I need you, I want to play about? Well, at the National Theatre of Scotland, I did that a lot more. We did that a lot more. Just because it's not a new writing theatre. Yeah. So really it's about creating a programme of work 
um, over. Uh, I mean, I would always try and see our. I would always try and look at our program as a year's worth of programming at once, mm-hmm. in order that people weren't going within three months. Well, there's nothing of so and so and so and so. We go. Well, the narrative is over a year. Yeah. Um, and it was much easier there to go, are we thinking about this? Are we thinking about that? Are we thinking about that? Um, and to be able to bring different groups of artists together to kind of uncover that in non-narrative ways, which is a lot of dance, lots of different kind of mm. things like that. Um, so yes, I've done a lot of that and I really like it. At the Royal Court, it's like with the Enquirer project, we did the newspaper project, but the Royal Court, it's slightly harder to do that because basically what you don't want to be doing is sort of television commissioning writers. Yeah by saying, you know, the commissioning editor has decided that we now need pieces about, yeah. you know, uh, police women in the north of England, so where are they? And, and also, I often feel that that sort of thinking can be incredibly limiting mm. and not, well, look at the television programming, as an example, mm. and, not, and not open up possibilities that you hadn't yet imagined. Mm. So it's a kind of balance for me about who are we asking at any one time not what we're asking of them, but who are we asking and what do we know that they're going to bring? Mm. So it's the sort of people becomes the balance mm. rather than just the subject that yeah. I would ask them to do, if because, that makes sense. Oh, absolutely, because also there's that sense that I always feel like I'm much better in collaboration because other people are interesting. Yeah, God, um, totally. <laughs> and I think it's almost like tapping into a hive mind yeah, you know, rather yeah, than yeah. just having to, yeah. to bear the responsibility for no, absolutely. a singular vision too Yeah, much. and also, you know, I mean... It's interesting when we get sort of waves of plays in certain issues or certain subjects or certain forms mm. and how people sort of affect each other from one thing or what you feels like a sort of, I hate this word, but what you feels like a zeitgeist idea is. And often the best plays are ones that aren't part of that mm. but do something much bigger and other. Mm. So an example of that for me in the year that we're, the calendar that we're in would be like, you know, who knew that we wanted to have a play set in space about not being able to get back to Earth? Mm. You know, who knew that that was going to be an amazing play? Yeah. Um, and who knew that we wanted to have a play about four women sitting in a garden drinking cups of tea and just having a chat and not even doing anything? Yeah. You know, uh, those are the moments where we get sort of, the sort of, with those genius minds. Mm where they uncover something and then those plays are about everything that we think yeah. about loneliness connection the end of the world climate change you know but they're not neither of them set out to write a climate change play yeah. but both of those plays are about how we've yeah. fucked up our world and how do we survive as ordinary people within it yeah but they're also fun also hugely both of those plays interestingly about sort of family relationships you know mother-daughter relationship and ex all this family relationships of the four women that they talk about, you know, yeah. killing a husband, all this kind of thing. You know, who thought I wanted to play about family of, relationships either? And all of that complexity. And had you said, I want to play about family relationships, it wouldn't also be about climate change no. and, and, and. That's exactly it. Yeah. That's entirely it. So, you know, the, the thing for me is about, is about these brilliant writers just doing mm. their thing mm. and then us being able to benefit from that, really. What, do, you, do you think about what your artistic legacy might be and I don't mean in a wanky way no, like no. I will leave this behind no. like do you think about how you because you you create ripples you you seem to be very good at creating like ripples that fill the ecology mm-hmm. are you do you think about what they will be in 20 30 40 years time when Vicky Featherston has passed from this place yeah I'm not going anywhere no <laughs> um, I think that that 
it's very generous that you say that about ripples because that is something I believe very strongly in and that can be a word that I would use. Mm. Oh, good. <laughs> which is about, you know, is what we're doing creating enough ripples? Mm. And that's not... Ripples is a really important word because it's not a stir. Mm. It's not... Provo- it's not. Provo- it's like, is it... Yeah, is it, is, yeah, it's the resonance of it, like sound waves, you know, mm. hopefully the resonance of this shouldn't die. Yeah. They may get less and less, but they will but be it's there always forever. there. Um, and I think about that a lot. And for me, those those sort of um, those sort of moments that create those ripples can occur from lots of different things. And those 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 moments are incredibly important to me, and really do fuel a lot of the things that I do. So um, the first sort of professionally paid job I ever had as in theatre was as um, on the regional theatre and director scheme. I went to West Yorkshire Playhouse when Jude Kelly was there. Yeah. And she, it's just when the building had reopened, the new big building, Mm -hmm. and she'd been there for a year, and she's quite young, setting it all off. And it was very interesting being somewhere which had had to have, and under Jude's kind of guidance politically, had to have an impact in its community. Mm. So that was a really important thing for me. I learned very quickly that context, the context that the work is made in, is really important. Who is it for? Who does it matter? Who are we trying to encourage? Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things when I think about legacy is about the relationship with the audience and and how our audience is going to be affected long term by something that they've seen. Mm-hmm. And that I I would love that the work that I am responsible for, either directing or or more importantly, much more importantly, kind of programming as artistic director that there will be people from the audience that will never forget some of those mm-hmm. things and it will influence them hugely and that's really and that they I don't need them to tell me about that. Mm. That's about a kind of quiet private thing that has shifted something and that really excites me, that possibility. It's also about um, then then the other side of that for me, especially here interestingly, at the Royal Court, and I've thought about this a lot because of course the context of the Royal Court is a little bit greyer than it is in the National Theatre of Scotland. And I found that quite hard mm. uh, because the legacy, the legacy here is a is a, is a sort of powerful. The one I inherited mm-hmm. is a sort of powerful. Um, sort of, what would I say? It's a sort of powerful, important theatrical elite. The legacy here, yeah. You know, in terms of the playwrights that have come through yeah. and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, Scotland, the, the, the legacy feels like it's within the industry. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah, and and of course in Scotland it felt like it's absolutely about the artists, but it's as much about the the, the audience of Scotland mm-hmm. and then how Scotland, how we would rep, how we're representing Scotland overseas in mm-hmm. this international world. So that context was very clear in terms of our community work and all of that. When I got here, that felt less clear, and I really struggled with what that context was, and um, and. You know where we're situated is complex to that. Yeah. Although it probably wasn't when it started because it wasn't the West End, mm-hmm. so it was very clear what its context mm-hmm. was at the end of the Bohemian Kings Road. Yeah. Um, now that's different. Then, now, yeah, it's, it, it feels like that the character of the place is very, very different. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, although it's useful, I've learned a lot from that. Mm. Looking at that as a positive, which I don't think I would learn. Yeah. Um, um, but so, so for me, that context was very di- was was complex and. It was about also the question of 
who am I bringing into the theatre? And we will never be able to encourage all the people to come to this place mm-hmm. that I think should be able to witness our work. Mm-hmm. It's not possible. That's not the right at- way around. It's not big enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is that about taking work out to people and building relationships with communities in a different way? But the big breakthrough for me in terms of the context was, and this is really, really vital in terms of legacy, was realising that although we want as wide a possible audience to, to witness the work, mm. we want to sell out as much as possible, we want to be kind of successful in all of those ways. The most important thing, I think, about the Royal Court is that we encourage writers to write plays who influence other writers. And it was this thing for me. If we had to take everything else away, yeah. which I would never want to do, we have to take everything else away... That's the thing. That would be the thing. Mm. And I think if you look back, the Royal Court is at its best when writers are writing plays here which influence the way other writers then think. When it's sort of leading a charge. Yeah, when it's leading a charge. Mm. And you can really see that that movement. Um, And and I'm saying writers because we're talking about the Royal Court, but of course I actually mean theatre makers, theatre thinkers, all of those things. People like all of us around (laughs) your writers. Um, but yeah and I think that's really really important and that was quite a thrilling thing Mm. to go I've gone from something which is about a very big broad national legacy concept actually to something which is a bit more of an intellectual idea Mm -hmm. as as a legacy and actually that we're not often allowed to admit that Mm. Mm. because we often have to speak about the widest possible and of course for me it's about the widest possible writers the widest possible group of people having access to all that but actually it's an intellectual idea about what are the plays that are affecting the other writers Mm -hmm. and often the plays that affect the other writers are often the plays that haven't been necessarily the biggest hits to the public because they do this tiny brilliant thing yeah yeah and that's and it's really important going back to the idea of stability versus risk, mm. that, that we don't become over-obsessed with stability at the expense of risk, mm-hmm. because then we could have some very good plays on that would get really good audiences and might even transfer to the West End and make us some money, but they're not necessarily Nothing. going to have any lasting impact yeah. Nothing would change. On, the, on the writers mm. or, or theatre makers going forward. So I feel this is a real sort of engine... Yeah, that's that's a really interesting legacy. It's sort of about lighting the touch paper. Yeah, yeah. And we'll never know. The gr- the exciting thing about that is it's not. You know, yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't follow it. I mean, I can have conversations with people about it, but mm. I, I won't know. And that's yeah, that's brilliant. I love it that it's not tangible. Yeah. Who knows what change we elicit as yeah. we move through the world? Yeah. It's interesting you talked about um, context. I've been being a li- I've been thinking a lot about context recently. Because I was looking at, because I studied ancient history and I had a little bit of a thing about ancient Egypt in particular. Yeah. And I was in the Met in New York looking at some canopic jars. I'm just going to tell you, I don't know what this is relevant I to. I love it already. Right. So these, these canopic jars, and the canopic jars are when you mummify somebody, oh, yeah. you take out their internal organs yeah. and you put them in these jars so that they can go with them into the afterlife yeah. so that they can yeah. have their liver yeah. when they get there yeah. but just so that the body won't decay yeah. on the journey um, and they tend to be made of alabaster and they're beautiful or obsidian maybe and they're beautifully carved like white with like they're just stunning they're the sort of thing that you would, you would put on your mantelpiece yeah. except it's got someone's heart in it 
So you go to a museum, and the British Museum have got them, and the Met have got loads, and they're laid out like these beautiful works of art, which they are. And I, I just happened to be there behind a troop of, of tourists from like upstate New York, and I was kind of listening to what they were saying, and I knew a little bit about stuff, and I was like, this is, this is really interesting. And I found myself getting really angry because they were talking about the beauty of these things. And I was like, that's somebody's heart, and that's somebody's lungs, mm. and that, like, the context of those things yeah. entirely changes yeah. what they are. Yeah. And it, here, they are just beauty. Yeah. But, but where they belong, where they're from, yeah. they are life itself. Wow. And like, and I feel like, especially when we make theatre, I, th- I think we don't always think enough about context. Mm, mm. Like you were talking about, not everyone can come here mm. to see everything, but maybe not everyone should. No, I agree, absolutely. Because those, the things, the stories, yeah, are, uh, may need to exist in their place. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And also, the stories don't don't. How can we know? how to make the stories be or look like they should be able to relate to everybody. We can just do what we are now mm. and who we are and how ha- ha- the accident of the writers who happen to be writing yeah. for the Royal Court now um, and, and what that means. Mm. You know, there's something... You ca- I think if you try to do it as um, a sort of grid and take that absolute responsibility, it would be a huge failure. Mm. So there has to be the accident of of chance and voice and what we miss out because we have something else instead and all of those kind of things is really important. But that's another thing that makes the whole thing so wearing because you sort of go, well, I don't want to be too... I can't be mathematical about this yeah. in, or scientific in any way. Mm-hmm. So it has to be a sort of... I think what I, I, think what I feel my, my job is, is, about, is about having the widest possible surface area. Right. For people to react Yeah. With. For people to react with, and that you know, that's me, that's our other associates, that's everyone else in the building. I think for me, one of the really important things is that, that I get that I'm excited about about here, and definitely to say the National Theatre Scotland and Payne's Bar was about enabling and empowering people in the building to feel that they can be part of that search and that conversation. Mm-hmm. What we should be doing, not it's not my sole responsibility; it's my responsibility to sort of be the mother of it. Yeah. But not to, to create actually, the conditions where yeah, that can happen. That's right. But not to mm. not to not to know it all, or to have to get it all, or to find it all. Do you think that's a again off piece question? But I feel like that's quite a rare. I talk to quite a lot of artistic leaders, mm. especially now I'm doing this, mm. and and I think it's quite rare for people to go to really to admit that they don't know everything. There are there are breeds, aren't there? Yeah, there are. <laughs> I mean, I think that. You know, the big... I mean... Well, you know, if, if you work in new writing, if you work with living writers, it's it's a huge relief because mm. you know you cannot... You, you are not them. They are the ones that are these kind of, you know, these alchemists yes. that live in the world and out of the same experience that I have, literally create a piece of art, which I then interpret. Yeah. But they do the alchemy... Mm-hmm. I just put the light on it, mm-hmm. um, and and 
so so how could I, how can I know the answers? I can't know the answers because I don't because they surprise me. Every, virtually every play I read mm-hmm. has that surprise for me. So it's a really important thing to know your place, really, even as artistic director within within what the art is that is being made with you and that you're able to make. It's really important to know your place. And that and and I was talking about something the other day about what your ego is in that. Because, of course, traditionally, the ego of theatre artistic directors has been about, about going, I am this, this everything here reflects me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is this, it is this, it is this. You know, I do, um, I do classics because you, can, you know the classic, so there's no question about that. My ego is imprinted upon the classic, so you see how I've interpreted it. Yeah. All of those things. I think that's where we think traditionally that's that mm-hmm. ego lies. My ego is, is, is as great as as massive as anyone's and my sense of arrogance. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that as an, in an insecure way. Mine no, is about you going... You to function in this world. Yeah, you have to, yeah. That's right. And mine is about a, a, a kind of joy and a sense of pride about myself that Carol Churchill sent Escape to Loan to the Royal Court while I was artistic director. Mm. You know, I had nothing to do with that. She still wrote that play, and she would have sent it to any artistic director. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, for for me, that's a that's that all that's all I've ever wanted is to be one of the first people to read a Carol Churchill play. She sends an email going, "Would you be interested in reading my play that I've just written?" You know, my head exploded when I opened that email. Yes, I've been re- dreaming about it since. Yeah, I was about exactly. 15. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so there is massive ego in there, but it's not that it's not the ego of having to imprint yourself on everything. Mm. It's the ego of feeling thrilled that people feel that they are able to excel and reach their potential with you. Yeah, it's the pride of like your garden at all. Well, no, because I've got a tiny little yard, but I do buy a lot of plants. I do buy a lot of plants that then die, and then I just replace them with some new plants. But yes, I would one day when I'm grown up, I will garden. Because I was (laughs) like, I I started a couple of years ago growing tomatoes in pots. Yes, I do that, and like it makes me so proud. I know, know. and I don't do anything other than put the seed in the pot and occasionally water it. No, I mean I tell you something, right? For me. It's the same as my kids are now 16 and 14. And it's the same for me as if we're all, if I'm sitting around with some friends and we're having a conversation and, you know, they'll be part of a discussion that we're having and they will really surprise me with their views mm. and what they're saying. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're extraordinary. And my ego is, but you're my child. But actually, I, I haven't have, made them I have raised that. you to be yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But of course I haven't. They're whatever they want to be. They are their own thing and that's yeah. what happened. So it's a really similar thing. Yeah. That's interesting. Do you... I, I, I'm going to hate myself for asking this question, but I have to. I led you into it. I'm sorry. I mentioned motherhood. Is there a gender thing? I feel like... Look, I feel like the people with the classics... Yeah. ...imprinting them... Yeah. They tend to be a certain breed of floppy-haired man. Yeah, definitely. Well, I do. I feel that. Te- like, tell me about that. In an, please, please be erudite on that, because I hate... On the one hand, I feel like... Well, it's about... Well, go on, sorry to interrupt you. No, no, there isn't even... Well, I I think on the one hand, I feel like I don't ever want to talk about my gender. No. Because, fuck that shit. Yeah. I can say that because it's my podcast. Yeah, totally. Um, But at the same time, there are things that my experience of moving through this world are that make me a lot better at things than people that don't have the same... Yeah. Battles, because I think if you if you are a woman, mm. 
you have to learn to negotiate your way out of shit in a way that men don't. Yeah. And you are socialised broadly. I'm going to hate myself for saying this, but like you're socialised broadly. Maybe. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you're socialised broadly to like consider the room in a different way and to always and to be and not all women are socialised like that, but that is the the umbrella narrative. Um, It's hard, isn't it? I mean, you know, I I think that um, a lot of the those a lot of those justified generalisations about theatre, people who make theatre, is also. Could, you could also go, is it to do with class and mm. education and has it taken longer for women to get into that kind of specific kind of educated class to want to pursue those things? I don't know. Mm. I think class is a massive thing about that because I think those, you know, it's not men, they're, they're middle-class, upper-middle-class educated men who are those floppy yeah. men with yes. doing the classics. Yes, that's, and that's really more fair. But it's, no, yes. but it's interesting. It is. It's, a, you know, there's, it's often Oxbridge. It's often... Or even if it isn't Oxbridge, it's an aspiration to yeah. Oxbridge. Yeah, it's the desire to appear as a character on Brides Have Revisited. Yeah, and, and, you know, so, yeah, so, so, so people have made it brilliantly, not mm. through that particular pathway, but it is because it's reflecting that pathway and that way of talking about it. I think all that shit, right? <laughs> Obviously. But, um, um, and it's not that I don't admire what individuals have, uh, what individuals create or what individuals do. It's just not for me. And I haven't, it's never, ever interested me. What I've always been more interested in is the effect that theatre has, the context of theatre and uh, that we're talking about and the effect it can have on, on, on anybody mm. rather than having to come to it from through a certain lens mm. and that's always just excited me I think that's excited me because of who I am not necessarily my gender mm-hmm. um, who I am politically mm-hmm. and I think that would but it's very hard to split those yeah, two things up yeah. yeah but I I feel that the the job of artistic director which is that balance between chief executive so take responsibility for the whole of the running business HR mm. all of that side of the organisation business planning and then taking responsibility for the artistic side of the uh, of the organisation as well which is quite an unusual job and some people would never go for that job and mm. some people love that job like I love that those two things I feel that the sort of the sort of I think it I think that the sort of multitasking nature of that and the nurturing versus ambition, all those things, which in order to have a happy place to be able to do that in, I think they are more female-minded attributes that you mm. need to bring to it. Uh, whether that, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm not saying that's necessarily gender, but it's definitely the, the approach of that. And I feel that the women that I know who are artistic directors or have been artistic directors in my generation actually manage that often a lot better than the men that I know who are artistic directors of that of our mm. generation. I mean, personally. Mm. I don't mean as in what it looks to the outside world. Mm. I just mean as in where the stress levels are and where yeah. the crises hit and all those kind of things. Mm. Because I think that a lot of the brilliant male artistic directors who I know have had huge successes have actually found some of those things quite difficult to mm. kind of coexist, whereas I feel that 
women I know are better designed for that particular weird job. It's a weird job. I mean, it's an odd thing. Yeah, managing like the pragmatic and the ephemeral. Yeah, it's all that. Yeah. It is that. So, you know, that's a terrible generalisation. But, you know, if somebody wanted to pin me to a wall with a gun to my head and I had to list them, I would be able to. Mm. About yeah. who, who, who... It's, a, it's, a, it's as much about... How, what I'm talking about is, not, is, is as much about how one privately manages those two things as an artistic director, not necessarily... I'm repeating myself, sorry. But not necessarily how it looks to the outside world. Yeah, that's interesting, because now that's got me thinking... I mean, this is a whole nother... This is a different podcast. But, yeah, just thinking about that, that sense of how much of yourself you give yeah. and how bruised you, yeah. you allow yourself... Like, yeah. And just managing that... Yeah. I mean, I give absolutely all of myself, but I give it in a, in a way which is whole to the rest of my life. So, so I, I, I started at Payne's Plough when I was 28, mm. and I'm now 49, so I've been an artistic director and a chief executive, literally without a break 21 since I was 28. Years. Yeah, 21 years. Wow. And then I had my first child when I was 30, so 31. So what's interesting for me is that I... I, I've only ever done this job with family, really, mm. these jobs with family. So the way for me, personally, to make these jobs work are that it is all of me that is part mm. of the job. And I don't think I could do this job without that, because I think that's the thing that keeps all of those different plates spinning for me mm. um, and, and allows that sort of multitasking to take place. I don't feel I need to come in... I don't ever... I don't feel I have to come into work and be a certain kind of person here. You are yourself. I am. I've been able, and I know that is because Mm. actually, and again, this is just my own particular circumstance, not that I think everyone, anyone should do it like this, it's because having had this job always with children and for a lot of time with young children, I haven't been able to do it any other way than being fully myself because I haven't haven't been able to pretend it. And I think that's been a real saving grace. I'd have gone mad otherwise. If I'd have had to do this on my own Mm. (laughs) without having to bring my family into Mm. all of this, I don't know how I would have balanced it out. Some nights would have been easy because I could have stayed later and not had to go home and done a bit more work, but that's it. Because I think that's one of the things, because I'm 34 Mm. and I got my job doesn't feel like it and I got my job at Oval House when I was 28 or 29 which is a similar thing and I haven't had children because I am so frightened of the weight of guilt (laughs) that I bear for everything already in my life being being not quite done as I would wish and I'm you know I'm either going to get over it or I'm not um but I feel like that's an amazing, in in a way, that's had I had my had I had my first kid just as I started over uh-huh. house, I'd have learned to be like that. Yeah, I think that's right. Which is a really useful thing. Yeah, yeah, and I also think yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think the other thing is, you know, oh my god, their legacy. If you if if you, the other thing I think is that. It, you don't know any better. It can't be any other way. So, yeah. so one of the things is you can't, you don't have to, you know. I mean, I, you know, none of it was planned. It just kind of happened for me. So you just sort of get on with it. Mm. And actually, that's quite, that's quite good. Yes, just get get on with life. But you don't, have to, you don't overthink it. Do you just go, oh my god, yeah. I'm pregnant? Right, that's it. So yeah. now we get on to the next thing. What so that means? My mum says this. I'm the youngest of five, and she says that if she had. If she'd had access to the kind of contraception we yeah. have now, yeah. she never would have been able to choose to have children. Yeah. 
That's and exactly the same. And I can so simplify. Yeah. I mean, also, because I, I found, I've never been somebody, I always imagined I would have children, but I've never been somebody going, oh my God, I want to have children, I want to have children mm. at all. So I don't know whether I would now be at 49 going, oh my God, it didn't happen, mm. if it hadn't happened by mistake. Yeah. Because I don't think the time would ever have felt right. Yeah. So... It's interesting, isn't it? It's mm. an interesting thing about once we start to over-plan in society and work in the world. Mm. I, f- I talk about this a lot um, with young directors, a lot with younger young women about you know now there are a lot m- the pathways, the possibilities seem better, much better mm. than they were when I was starting out. You can connect up with other people who are in the same position mm. as you. There's big groups of people all going through the same. But you thing. have to choose like unequivocally so much. Yeah, it's much harder mm. because of all of that. Uh, and I think the sort of oblivion and just getting on with it actually can can be yeah. quite a relief in mm. comparison. And actually, that I mean that's reflected almost in the rehearsal room, isn't it? That sometimes when you often when you rock up without a plan because you don't quite know yeah. what, what the right question yeah. is even yeah. then you can find the yeah. way in an interesting way yeah I often I don't so much anymore because now obviously I'm growing up but when I was younger there would always be you know like one day in the rehearsal room where we'd all have gone out and had much too much to drink the night before and everyone would turn up with kind of terrible hangovers and you'd have to kind of survive the way through the day mm. and I would often find that that was the day when I had my best discovery yeah. because you went into a different thing and you had to sort of go ah you know and you find something else. Yeah, and you're, and you're willing to try anything that will mean it's less agonising yeah, for just right. 10 minutes. Yeah, and you're going to a different yeah. headspace. Quite interesting. Not to be recommended, obviously. You know, God the forbid. The alcoholic director. I'm not saying that. No. Then, uh, but maybe the, the questioning open director. Let's just, <laughs> let's just phrase it like that, right? Yeah, perfect. Anyway, I had a great night in the pub and I'd force it. And that's really important. That's yeah, part of the process. Totally. Um, okay, so I think my last question then yeah. is why do you do this? Um, gosh, that's a brilliantly difficult question and also very easy. It's, I, I, it's hard to answer that without sounding pat because, you know, the, the, my sort of immediate answer is I, I can't imagine doing anything else mm-hmm. apart from being a nurse because my mum was a nurse mm-hmm. and I always wanted to be a nurse. Um, but, so I can't, I can't imagine doing anything else. What I love about it is is that there are so many aspects to it so it keeps me really interested and excited and challenged mm. all the time so all of those different things even though that I, I often whinge about her but there are too many of them but um, all those different aspects of it um, and I sort of think that I do it because I came to the sort of growing realisation that you know you start off with one thing and you're interested in one thing when you're a kid and then that leads into another thing another thing another thing it's like a sort of rolling stone in a way. You sort of end up going, oh, all of these things add up. Oh, my mm. God, there is a job. Mm. You know, when I was... Um, the first thing I ever did work-wise was when I was nine, very precociously, I used to love reading, and I lived in Purley, um, and I used mm-hmm. to go to my local library, and they still existed, and mm-hmm. it was a big children's library. I always love it there. And then I once went up to the world and I said, can I come and work here on a Saturday, putting the books away? And she said, yes. So I worked for a year, like a 10p a, a Saturday. And I worked for a year in the Pearly Children's Library. And it was like one of the most exciting things I ever did because I would put all the books in alphabetical order. And then I would literally then get to do the little tickets and stamp the tickets and this kind of thing. Also, the power of that. I know. I mean, I just absolutely <laughs> loved it. But, you know, there's still something about that which is still in this job. 
you know. Yeah. So the yeah, like the that, curation yeah, and the, all and the that. order. Yeah. So you know the plays and the, so there's just something about you know when you're lucky enough to end up with a job which feels like it's all the things that you have been sort of paddling around mm. in, in lots of different ways. Then that's kind of amazing, really. Yeah, because it's inevitability to it. Yeah, and I never imagined it that I'd get it. So. <laughs> You just are, it's what you are, I think. So that, <laughs> you are. Yeah, that kind of happens. It's amazing, isn't that, with people, though? Mm. You just sort of look at them and you go, wow, the, you know, I don't know. What else would you, yeah, what else could you be? Yeah, well, what else, yeah, mm. one is the, the sum of everything. Yeah. Fascinating. There's a Louis de Bernier poem that people read at weddings about well, roots growing intertwined and stuff. And I, I always think about that in terms of like in terms of theatre, like I don't remember a time when one of the things I did mm. wasn't somehow this. Yeah, no, exactly the same. It's weird, isn't it? Mm. And I think it's also weird about how you. I'm, I'm really fascinated. I think this. I think this about a lot now. You know, sometimes about like how do people become playwrights? What's the thing that means that they sit down one day and start writing? Other words, other people's words like that, yeah. rather than writing a poem, yeah. or rather than not writing, or rather than isn't it amazing yeah. that we just kind of end up doing these? Or someone picks up a guitar and they will write a song. Yeah. Or I find that utterly and utterly fascinating about what is it in our individual DNA mm. that guides us into these different things. Because music I understand much more in a way than playwriting because I, I studied singing and trained as a singer for a long time. My God, you're and so inspiring. So many amazing things. Uh, or a dilettante, depending on how you look at it. Um, maybe I should stick at something. Um, no, I don't. Um, and yet, like, I understand why people like sing because that expresses something you yeah. cannot express in any other way. Yeah. I know what that's for. I can't do it yeah. any other way. But like writing a play... Like the, I, but that's why I could don't do it. Yeah. Because I don't understand that yeah. imperative. Yeah. Um, but also, yeah. sometimes, you know, it's people sort of, you know, it's an interesting thing about age, because, you know, you never want to be ageist at all, um, and you want to kind of be able to encourage people. But there is a part of me where I sort of go, well, if you've got to 40 and you haven't written a play, you're probably not a playwright. <laughs> it doesn't mean to say that if you wrote a brilliant play, I wouldn't put it on. Yeah. But actually, yeah. you know, some people wake up and it's all that they know that they can do. And I love it that people shift around and do different things and swap jobs with those things. But, you know, I, I'm 49, I haven't written a play. Yeah. There is a reason for that. It's because I am not a playwright. My dad used to say that. Uh, he's a potter. And um, he's like, if, yeah, if, you haven't, if, you, if you don't have to do it by the time you're 30, you probably just shouldn't. That's really interesting. <laughs> Yeah. That'll make a lot of people feel really scared. That yeah. Said that. All these people are going, oh, I haven't done it. No, but you can have to do it without yeah, having yeah. got there. Yes, like, that's very true. I think, I, think the, I think that's right, though. I think the urge is there. I do think that's absolutely right. I think that's right. The other thing that has happened in our society, which is the legacy of people paying for education mm. and different things, is that there are a lot more courses available to people which I think are incredibly distracting. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is that, you know, you had to pitch into Overhouse at the age that you did. Mm. I started to paint plough. That age now, which isn't that long ago for mm. you, but people of that age now, 27 or 28, are going, oh, I don't know if I'm ready to run an organisation yet. 
I think I need to go and... Can I come and shadow you, Vicky, in a thing? Peter or? Hall ran the arts at 23. Yeah, no, but this is the legacy of... Oh, yeah. of, 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 of uh, and it is because there are more courses offered mm. and more resource put into that kind of thing. So we all think that we can get a little bit more mm. training to be better at the thing when we get there, rather mm-hmm. than just doing it. And that's been a massive push shift yeah. for us. Whereas actually, actually, nothing prepares you. No, just do it. That's, just do it, make Someone a mess of it. Someone said to me the other day, a really brilliant woman, she's like um, a sort of producer for a big company, but the producers and the creators, it's really interesting work, and she came to me because she wants to change to be a director. And I just thought, why don't you just direct something? She was like, oh. And I didn't, I didn't mean that glibly. Yeah. It was like, you know, just if you it. want to be a director, get a group of people together. You don't need to need any money. You need money to put shows on, probably. Yeah. But if you want to be a director, you just need to get a group of students together who want to try and yeah. be in a play. Give it a go. Give it a go. Although I can, so I can sympathise. I've just, um, I'm making a show mm-hmm. as a solo theatre maker for the first time. I've just spent five years. I now realise yeah. being a complete shit to theatre makers by saying things like, "Just get on with it." <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and I'm making I'm making a show because I think I have to um, and I've got a bit of Arts Council funding and I got an artist that I really trust to come in and work with me and I was a bit upset about a thing and she's like well that's the show that you have to make that's why you're upset and I was like yeah but and she's like well just get on with it and so it's exactly quoted right. me back to me yeah. and I was like oh I was evil but I understand the fear or the Yes. Of, have, of the new thing. Yeah, well, do you know what? This is so interesting, I just get on with it. Because this is something I learned from Jude Kelly, mm. right? So there I was, I was like 23, regional theatre under rep scheme, went to live in Leeds, got my granddad's Ford Fiesta, which he lent me, packed the car, drove up, I didn't really to live, turned up there, really excited. And um, started assisting, doing various things, met gorgeous people, found somewhere to live. It was like one of those like you know amazing experiences that you just everything shifts as a result of it. And um, one of the things that Jude said to me, which is, I'm too busy, I will not be able to give you the time that I should give you, and I'm already, I, I know I'm going to feel guilty about that, so I just have to tell you that you know I I am running the West Yorkshire Press, it's massive, I've got small children. There's a whole set of conversations I would love to have with you that we will never have, maybe one day, but I'm just telling you that up front. And I really admire her for that. Yeah. She, when we see each other now, we really laugh about that. And I'm like, it was just very clear. She says, the one thing I will tell you is, you're here because I believe in you, because I went through an interview process. You're here because I believe in you. So I'm giving you carte blanche, basically. She said, any idea that you have, she said, run it by me. But then, and when I say, yes, I like the idea, you do not need to come back to me for me to make it happen to you. You have to do it yourself. And she said, well, that's basically the thing. And I was like, God, that's so That's, that's a dream come true. It's so liberating. Yeah. Because you just sort of go, oh, right, here, we've got a theatre now. You know, so, we, you know, we created a youth theatre project. We created comedy improvisation. I raised £80,000 for a street theatre festival from Leeds City Council in the centre of Leeds to try and repopulate mm-hmm. it over four years. All this stuff. But it just because she just went, well, just do it. Yeah. That's great. Such I wish, learning thing. I wish more people said that now. I know. I feel like that doesn't get... I do say it a lot. But that's Good. definitely her legacy to me, and then that passes on, and that's that thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. We just did this like, the open court thing mm-hmm. with the young people, you yeah. know, and we sort of went, let's do it. And then we come to me, should we do this? Or we go, just, uh, as, uh, I've said we're doing open court with young people. You know. <laughs> it's not mine. I just don't want it to be my problem. Yeah. <laughs> go for it. Yeah. yeah. And then my ego, going back to ego, is the fact that... You know, I was, I was, that happened, mm. 
my ego isn't any responsibility for any of the work that happened, which yeah. was amazing, because they just did it themselves. But that in, that in itself, though, that, that ability to go, I trust, mm. is so deeply rare. Not, many, not yeah. many people do that. And again, there's probably a correlation with the kind of theatre you make and your class yeah. and all that stuff. But the, the understanding that sometimes control can come in giving up control. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's I special. That's right. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 